What's going on, everyone? Welcome to Round Tripper here on 89.1 WXVU Villanova Radio. It is Monday, January 20th. I'm Pat Zhang, joined by executive producer Jack Sherwood, co-host Conrad Bayer, and we have a special guest on for his first show on WXVU, Anthony Critelli. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Welcome, Tony. Sorry for the uh, tumultuous start to the show, testing out the uh, the new equipment there, and uh, so that was fun. So figure out how to get rid of that echo. Everything goes as planned. It's boring, right? Yeah, exactly, right? So we'll get into it. But first, happy Martin Luther King Day. I'll, I'll, ah, of course, have to get into that first. But we will start with our shout-outs. Thank you so much for listening to Connor, Jordy, Megan, Jules, Shannon, Joe, Rebecca, Rick, Dan, Brian, Jack, Not Sherwood, Madeline, Cap City, Katie, Uncle Ken, Aunt Diane, Marie, Joe, Johnny, Mom, Dad, Bears, Kane, Sherwoods, Woods, Moyes, everyone and anyone thank you so much for listening we are live on instagram round underscore tripper 23 you can see us in the flesh on there and podcast goes live every tuesday morning on itunes and spotify just search round tripper two words all right now that we're past that how is everybody doing today good a lot of fun doing pretty good can't complain yet no. Yeah, no, no night class, so, uh, you know, everything's good on this Monday. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> basketball, Jake Nevin, 9 o'clock. Are you going to win? Oh, he's, for yeah. those oh, that are not watching oh, right now, maybe. on, I the, the, on the live stream, he just pulled out a headband. No, it's no, a shooting sleeve. Oh, excuse me. I actually shooting would, I would stop wearing it sometimes because someone good would try to guard me. I'd be like, no, I don't, I'm not trying to run with you. I, <laughs> like, I, I'd be like, so it's some games I just don't wear it. I totally understand. Late shout out as well to Emily, who is listening as well. So there we go. Fantastic. Thank you so much for listening. But all right, we are going to get straight into it then. We're going to start... Wrapping up with uh, Championship Sunday, which happened yesterday, NFL. We are not going to do Super Bowl preview. That's next week. You got to tune in again because we know what we're doing on the radio at this point. We got to get you to come back in. So we're going to start with the Chiefs game, where the Chiefs were able to take down the Tennessee Titans, 35 to 24. And to start with it, I mean, the Titans have kind of been this runaway train so far this postseason, especially towards the end of uh, the month of December as well. How was Kansas City finally able to stop them and to stop Derrick Henry? Uh, I think they're able to get a lead is if you look at the first two games, or like basically going back to, I think, week 15, even when the Titans played New Orleans, they kind of is ahead of lead, so they're able to run the ball, or it be week 16, pardon me, is they're able to run the ball and burn clock, and since Casey got up, is they kind of couldn't just hand the ball off to Derrick Henry 30 times in the second half and just eat up the time possession, and their defense stepped up after that nine-minute um after that nine-minute scoring drive that the Titans had at the end of the second quarter, like the defense kind of was like, okay, maybe we should stop this and not let the Titans literally have take up a full quarter on a drive. I think I think it's the same thing. Uh, you were talking about a little last night or yesterday afternoon while we were watching the game that it was mainly if Kansas City is able to get the lead, Tennessee's kind of screwed because they they're out of their game. Because when you're behind this Kansas City team, you can't just rush the ball and, and have those nine five to nine minute drives where you're just marching the ball down the field. While you are dominant in those stretches, you just can't keep up with the points there, especially when the first drive ended in a field goal. Um, I believe two of their first three possessions ended in field goals for the Titans, which they haven't kicked a field goal. I believe it was in like 49 days or something at that point because their kicking situation just hasn't been good. But once you do that and you let that... Kansas City offense get going at the end of the end of the first half. You kind of you you can't really keep up with that even with how good Derrick Henry is. You just 
don't have you can't aren't afforded the time that is needed for a Derrick Henry led offense. Yeah, and also I think like kind of building off of what you guys have said, like you know Kansas City going in, there's one guy on the other team that you got to stop, and that's mm. Henry. And I mean to their credit, they held him to 61 total yards, where in the past couple of games he's gone over 100 rushing yards and. I think he's been setting a bunch of rushing records for the playoffs. So, I mean, that's just a testament to their defense as well. But also, you know, it's Pat Mahomes and his defense. And you know what? Tennessee's built to control the clock and, you know, kind of um, just dominate time of possession. And, you know, Kansas City's a, a gunslinging team. So, you know, you got to put up points somehow, and they just weren't able to do it. Yeah, and that's kind of where I'm going to go with this. And that I think Kansas City was able to slow Tennessee down because their best – defense is their offense just how good that offense is and that they can just score in chunks they can score quickly and it was just too much for Tennessee Tennessee did not play poorly at all I mean people wanted to pile on Tannehill for the first two games for not having passing yards which a just wasn't his fault because they were able to pound the run but in this game over 200 yards two touchdowns no interceptions they didn't exactly play bad it was that they went up against, oh, yeah, that guy Patrick Mahomes who's the best quarterback in the league, in my opinion, a generational talent, with three tu- three touchdowns through the air, another one on the ground, which we're going to get to in a second here. <laughs> Kansas City is just that good right now, and especially on offense. I don't think there is a team in the league that can match what they can do on offense. Yes, Baltimore had more points uh, on, on average than Kansas City this year, but as we saw – that can kind of get stifled a little bit. When Mahomes is in, I'm not sure you're stopping that Chiefs offense. Yeah, you you really can't. After the first, I think it was the first two possessions by Kansas City, kind of similar to what they did against Houston, they went five for seven for touchdowns mm-hmm. the rest of that game. Um, and if if Kansas City's doing that, like you, you just can't stop them because Patrick Mahomes literally – can, can just throw the ball wherever he wants, and then when you're trying to guard everybody, one, Tyreek Hill is just going to get open somehow just because he's the fastest guy in the guy in the field no matter who you're playing. Um, but he can also run it a little bit, as you showed at that end of the first half. But you just can't stop a team like that. And basically, any, no, I think any team running into that offense right now would have lost, no matter how well you're playing, if it's Brian Tannehill or anybody else. But it definitely wasn't Tannehill's fault. Yeah, like the only only like that's the only the best defense. I think what Pet said is the offense, and that's the same thing. Is like, yeah. and that's what you know is you wouldn't need the Rams from last year during that Monday Night Football game. Like that's what you you need mm-hmm. to basically you you need to go in the game thinking, hey, we're gonna put up six scores, and it needs to be five to six touchdowns. As you can't settle, you for, can't field settle goals. for field goals, and that's yeah. No, absolutely. And then just sticking with that Kansas City offense, they built it to go with the new rules in the NFL. It's all speed and all mm-hmm. skill guys around the uh, the perimeter. Sammy Watkins, guy hadn't caught a touchdown pass since week one, <laughs> goes off for the touchdown pass, hundred or the touchdown catch, 114 yards. Tyreek Hill, as Conrad said, just doing Tyreek Hill things, running past defenders. Uh, Damian Williams has got speed of his own. Darwin Thompson, they don't even really use, and he was a well-regarded rookie. And then you've got Travis Kelsey, not your speed guy, but just a reliable target over the middle. This Kansas City offense is so, so good. So, Kind of closing out the second quarter there, going into halftime, when Patrick Mahomes decided to scramble on a play that looked broken. Got down the sideline, made a couple men miss, spun back, got in the end zone to extend the Chiefs' lead at that point, or to give them the lead at that point. We're only two years in. We've got a Super Bowl to play. Thus far, though, is that the signature play of his career, or do you go back to the MVP season last year? 
I mean, I don't... So young in his career, like, you don't want to say it's his signature play, but I think that it's definitely... Subject to change. Subject to change. I think it's one of those plays, though, where he shows you that he has that... Diff- like, he's just built differently. He's like, this is my team. I'm going to do whatever I can to win this game, because, to be honest, he's been their leading rusher the last two games yep. against Tennessee and against Houston. He's had 53 yards in both games, so... You know, he's he's literally doing everything. He's passing it, he's running it. So, you know, he has a variety of signature plays, but I definitely think that that one's going to be, uh, especially if they are able to win the Super Bowl, I think that's definitely going to be one people are going to remember on this playoff run. Yeah, I think that his signature play until now was the no-look throw, and mm-hmm. that was what, yeah, or, what or was either the no-look or the left-handed throw, either or, which are both incredible. But, yeah, I think what, especially given the given the circumstances, it's granted still was the end of the second quarter, but... AFC Championship game, you're down. The, the offense is, I don't know if you can say struggling, because I don't think that offense can struggle. <laughs> but, yeah, it was a broken play. Could have gone out, out of bounds four to five times. Could have gotten stripped at the goal line. There was four defenders surrounding him when he was inside the five, and then still housed it, which was incredible. Yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic play, and you have to put it up there in a signature play just because it's, the AFC Championship game, it mm-hmm. means so much more than either that no-look or the left-handed pass passes from last year. I say, I think those two plays are more memorable. Like, I think this was a great run. He definitely made up, uh, broke from a broken play, was able to take a lot. But if I'm going back and I'm like, this is what makes Patrick Mahomes special, it's it's the no-look pass where he just able to look at the defender completely out of the, out of the way. Or the left-handed where it's like, what is he doing? Like, I think those stick out more to me, and that's what I'm going to remember more. But this is definitely up there because those, I believe those two, yeah, they were both regular season games, yes, and this is were. a playoff game, so it obviously adds more. But I'd, I'd still probably put those other two plays ahead of it. Yeah, I was kind of going to go there, too, that all of these just show how ridiculous yeah. of a talent Mahomes is and how different he is than just the regular breed of quarterback in the league. But I do give him the nod here as a signature play. And again, this hopefully for him, will change in two weeks. So we'll see. Just a fun and off-the-beat question for this. But just his ability, we all know about the arm. He's got the strongest arm in the NFL. To be able to get to the, the weak side of the pocket, scroll Josh up. Allen. Josh Allen. <laughs> Josh Allen could throw a football through a brick wall, yes. Yeah, but Pat, Pat Mahomes, maybe second. Close second. <laughs> I, I My fault for saying the one attribute that Josh Allen is very, very good at. Um, but he's more accurate with that. <laughs> more accurate. I'll course. give him that. Give him and, that. Uh, and does it lateral, right, at the end of crucial games? They worked out, though. It's not the clock. <laughs> technically stopped the clock, so it's fine. He was really just trying to stop the clock. Yeah. It was a smart play. Well, it's, here's the thing, though. Do you throw it left-handed or do no look? Or do you do a no look pitch behind your back? <laughs> just got the clock in the yeah. playoffs. So he just he I I I digress. I apologize. This is a pro Josh Allen podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> I apologize for you and off that was your side. No, it, it's okay. But um, Anthony was bringing up running the ball before, and that's what we'll move into with this final question about the Chiefs. They don't have a running game right now. They they simply do not. It has been Mahomes. Can they succeed in the Super Bowl against a stout 49ers defense without being able to run the ball? I think so. I think. It's almost because that 49ers front seven, especially that their D line is so good. I don't, I don't think anybody besides maybe Derrick Henry Bay will do really anything against that. Um, so it kind of takes away and makes a one-dimensional team even more one-dimensional because you're not even going to get the, like really anybody. You're not going to get Williams to break probably anything against that team. 
So I'm not sure, because it's such a strength of the 49ers, I'm not sure how it's going to affect that game that much, because I think the game plan, no matter what, would be, all right, we have Patrick Mahomes, let's throw the ball all over the field. I think you do have to be scared, though, because, you know, Richard Sherman had the best year for a cornerback. If you look at, like, you know, pro football-focused statistics, I think he allowed, like, the lowest completion percentage on the season when targeted. So, you know, I don't think he's going to shadow Tyreek Hill. But, you know, Tyree Kill, I, I think he'll get open. But like you said, front seven, even if it doesn't stifle the run, which I'm sure it will, you get that front seven. They're putting pressure on the quarterback. He's got to get that ball out quick, mm-hmm. right? And the way that secondary has been playing, like, I, I think it could hinder them a little bit. Yeah, especially if you're up and you're trying to chew clock at the end mm-hmm. of the game. You get those crucial, you know, three and outs. And who knows? George Kittle easily takes it 60 yards on his own. So you, you got to watch out. You got to watch out. Yeah, that's a great point. I was thinking, too, is I had Richard Sherman on Tyreek Hill. Will, you know what you said, will he shadow him the whole game? And I think Mahomes is the best when he has the broken plays. So I think that with, like, the front four, it's going to be not only can they get pressure, but can they contain him. If they allow, you know, Grant, he can still sit in the pocket, guys at his feet and just all arm, sling it 50 yards. But um, I think it will be interesting to see, and I think that, at the end of the day, it's Petty Mahomes. It's what you said. He's a generational talent. He's got a ge- generational arm. So I don't know how much it will affect them because I think that I think they're still going to go in there and do pop passes. You know, do the jet sweep with the pop pass. He's still going to throw it. And um, yeah, especially to Damian Williams, averaging two point six yards per carry is abysmal. Not good at all. Yeah, really. And where I'm looking at it is that. I think Kansas City is just, they've got their strategy to sling it, and that's just what they're going to rely on. Now, yes, when this comes down late, I love your point about you know clock management there. It may be more beneficial for them to just try to throw some quick routes than try to run the ball here if they need a first down. Because, yes, obviously if you're trying to shoot clock, just run the ball. But are they going to be able to get any effective yardage out of that? I don't think they're going to be able to. San Francisco is so quick and so athletic um, up front. That's going to be a real problem. So I think you're going to see Kansas City sling it. And you know what? It's in Miami. So as long as you're getting the weather conditions that's normally in Miami, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be perfect for Mahomes to be able to sit back there and throw it 40 times. So I do think you're going to see Kansas City with a little bit of an advantage there. But moving into a team that ran the ball a heck of a lot <laughs> on Sunday, <laughs> San Francisco 49ers took down the Green Bay Packers 37-20 to for a victory. Probably the happiest day of Conrad's season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would say so after yeah. the Bears season. Yeah, so. Conrad, game ball to Conrad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was he was thrilled to uh, to see that franchise go down. But as I just have on the show sheet, Raheem Mostert. Period. Raheem Mostert. Yes, I, I picked him up in my fantasy league. I think week fifteen, and the guy since week fifteen has been phenomenal. And you know, I think that that. That group of running backs is just incredible. You have mm. Raheem Mostert. Unfortunately, Tevin Coleman got a little banged up. Got injured, He's questionable. Sure. So I, I like having multiple <laughs> ones for change of pace, but like you still have Matt Breida. And the guy rushed the ball for third, you know, 30 times for 220 yards, four touchdowns. And Green Bay's front seven is no slouch. They no, that's the, the best part of their you know, defense. They have Zadarius Smith. They, they have a bunch of really good players. So, you know, I, I'm impressed with them, man. I, I really think he's going to be something special. Yeah, I'm just really impressed by this San Francisco team. They were just able to just kind of manhandle that Green Bay team, especially in the first half. Second half kind of let Aaron Rodgers kind of do some stuff. But they really just committed to that running game, almost like the Titans usually did throughout the rest of the postseason. 
until yesterday. And just once they got the lead, they're like, we have a great running game, great offensive line, um, a great tight end in George Kittle that can block um, fan- fantastically and just just be like, we're going to do this. We know Garoppolo has had an up-and-down season, and people are starting to question him. So let's not not put it in his hands, but like let's let him just limit the amount of mistakes <laughs> he can make so that this team has the best chance of making to the Super Bowl. And we'll see if their game plan changes for the next game, but it's phenomenal that they're able to run the ball like that. Yeah, it was incredible. It was, especially too, I look at the, was it, they were up, San Francisco was up three, or maybe zero, zero, and it was third seven. Shotgun just handed off to him, and he was just shot out of a cannon mm. and scored. And it's just, when you can do that on third down, like, you know, it's, especially too, Casey doesn't have that great of a defense, so it will be interesting. And also, too, they use the most motion out of any team in the NFL. So by just putting that eye candy out there is it kind of forces the linebackers, forces the safeties to, you know, look the op- you know look somewhere else. And then all of a sudden you hand it off to Moser, you hand it off to Coleman, off to Breda, and it's, um, you know, smooth sailing from there. Yeah, and possibly the most damning part about it for the Packers, or just the most impressive part for the 49ers, was when they got the interception on Aaron Rodgers with about a minute left in the first half. San Francisco didn't throw it. They <laughs> ran it twice with Mostert, and he got him in from about 30 yards out on just two runs. So you would think they'd have some urgency there and try to throw the ball around, but Mostert still was able to gash that defense. Now, on Mostert, this is his fifth team, so he's bounced around the league. Browns, Ravens, Dolphins, Bears. I'm sorry. Had to, had to be mentioned. 49ers brought him in. Do you know who brought him in? Chip Kelly. Everything went wrong with Chip <laughs> Kelly in San Francisco, but he gave them this gift of Raheem Mostert, and it paid off for them in the NFC Championship game, being able to send them to the Super Bowl. Now, Garoppolo, as we kind of mentioned, only went 6-for-8. Again, I just don't put much stock into it because they didn't have to. Uh, they didn't have to throw the ball. They're just with how good that running game was, and let's also be clear on this, this game was over at halftime. I don't it, this game thirty seven to twenty. Not as close as the game it was. wasn't that close at all. Green Bay did not convert a third down until the third quarter. This game was over, and they were able to yes fight back and get those the Aaron Jones touchdowns late on. But this was complete domination from San Francisco in your conference's championship game. That's a scary notion going into the Super Bowl. Yeah, the only the only thing that worries me about Garoppolo going six of eight, I don't think he's gonna do it because he's obviously gonna have to throw the ball against mm-hmm. Kansas City. But uh, I'm I'm gonna bring back a name that uh, some of our viewers, you know, might be aware of. Uh, anyone know Blake Bortles? Oh, I've I've heard that you know, name. No, a couple of years ago, you know, serviceable quarterback. Now, obviously, Jimmy Garoppolo is better than Blake Bortles. I'm not saying. Hey, he that. was in an AFC Championship game. He was in an AFC Championship game, but his defense had a significant part of that. Mm-hmm. So my only worry is. Yes, defense wins championships, but you still need that quarterback because not just anyone can win those games. You no. know what I mean? No, I, absolutely. I think Garoppolo is that guy, and he's got enough talent on him that he can throw it. This is just how San Francisco does it. They're balanced. They're going to beat you with defense, and they've got enough weapons on offense, especially, as we said, George Kittle. Depot Samuel has turned into what uh, a really, really nice player for them. Crazy and a very much under-the-radar move was when they acquired Emmanuel Sanders around the trade deadline. Now, Sanders only had one target in the NFC Championship game, but again, they didn't throw the ball. Threw the ball eight times. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so 
they've built a really nice offense. And then Kittle is just on another level, as most yeah. of the other tight ends in the league. So I think San Francisco really can score and can pick it up when they need to. They just didn't have to yesterday. Yeah, and one thing to go off of if the game plan changes and Garoppolo does have to throw in the in the Super Bowl, one thing that, like, Bill Belichick was basically going to pick Garoppolo over Brady. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you have to, as much as everybody hates the Patriots, Bill Belichick... Bill Belichick is a great coach, and if he was going to pick this guy, there's got to be something in that. Yeah, so it was craft that forced him to. Uh, like, to that's pick the Brady. one thing that I'm still. I I think this 49ers team is very good because they only had to have him throw eight times, but there's definitely something within him that just I guess hasn't come out really this year, um, for whatever reason because they can run the ball better than almost anybody. That if if forced to, I think it it would come out in a Super Bowl. Yeah, and, and I think that's very fair. But all right, so we're sitting at 727. Definitely want to wrap this one up and get into college football and MLB. So we'll just quick touch quickly on some NFL coaching carousel just because next week we want to do strictly Super Bowl stuff and we weren't able to touch on it last week. So we're going to start in New York or New Jersey, however you want to look at it, <laughs> with the New York Football Giants hiring their new head coach in Joe Judge. We're just going to say a couple lines on each coach, but we'll spend a little bit more time on Judge here because we've got myself and, uh, and Anthony here. And what did you think of the hire? So, you know, I, I was like every Giants fan. I was a little skeptical, but I, I sat through that whole interview, and he said a lot of the things to make a fan comfortable. Oh, you know? yes, and he I did. Like, I like that he's a special teams guy. I think that that gives you a different perspective on the team, having to really know your personnel, know how you can, you know, deploy them in different scenarios and, and who's good at what and knowing each other's strengths. So I, I like it from that perspective. But, you know, uh, as a Giants fan, you, you got to prove it to me first because mm-hmm. uh, we have had, you know, this is our third head coach in four seasons, five yep. seasons. So, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, though. Yeah, no, that's very fair. And what excites me about with the Giants with this hire is that it is something different because I feel like so many times it's the same thing over and over again. You fire a coach, you either bring in a retread that failed somewhere else, which was the Pat Shermer situation here, or you just chase that hot coordinator. And you go for him and you stick him in and you say, this is it, this is our guy. And it doesn't work. This is different. This is going for a special teams guy that, like Ann said, has to touch all facets of the team and get guys that are normally not very talented to go out there and play very well in a very important part of the game. Also, I really like that he's not going to be playing... Um, calling plays on the sideline he's going to do his job as a head coach and be that ceo and walk around and deal with the players during the game for game management let your offensive coordinator handle the offense let your defensive coordinator handle the defense you work on clock management and making sure your guys are ready to go out there i love that you don't see that very often anymore so many of these coaches take that coordinator role with them and i think it kind of clouds what they're able to do the other thing with judge as we said inexperienced first head coaching job I like what he did hiring Jason Garrett. I think it's smart. It's a guy that knows the NFC East. It's a guy that's had very good offenses for a while. Surrounding himself with that, I think will really work, especially, obviously, we all know plan A, plan B, and plan C for the New York Giants is developing Danny Jones. And then on defense, took more of a risk with Patrick Graham and the young, kind of unproven defensive coordinator coming over from Miami. So we'll see what happens there. He went inexperienced, inexperienced. But overall, it's exciting. And that's something the Giants haven't had, especially for coaching, in a while. Is there anything you two wanted to touch on before we move on to the other coaches just very quickly? Yeah, I was just going to say special. there's a lot of special teams coach that have – a lot of NFL coaches that have special teams experience. John Harbaugh, that comes straight to the top of the head. Bill Belichick Bill did it before Belichick. he moved to a defensive coordinator yeah. role. And then obviously for me, the Bills is Marv Levy, who led the Bills to the four Super Bowls, got his 
starting gig as special teams coach. So it definitely is um, what you guys said. It's, it's just a different perspective. Yeah, it is, which I'm, I think that's a great hire. I think it's, yeah, kind of the same thing. Like, special teams guys look at it differently. They have to look at everybody on the team, not just the offense, the defensive guys. Um, and then what you said about the he's not calling plays, I really like that. I think too many coaches take on that pressure, and then they kind of forget about that other half of the ball. Or they forget, that, or they just forget about their half of the ball because they're dealing mm-hmm. with the head coaching stuff. I think it's really good to be able to just look at it from um, like the top floor and just deal with. Let's make sure everything's just going well um, as a team, not as an offense or a defense. Yeah, sure, and, and that's very, very fair. And we've been very complimentary of Judge, and I, I think, listen, he's earned it from what he said and what he's done so far since he's gotten this job. But also. No one knows much about Joe Judge, as we yes. said going into it. That's how he opened his press conference. <laughs> if people don't know much about me, I'm going to talk about who I am, which I thought was actually very genuine and, and, and very, very helpful with it. So we'll see where that goes from there. All right, we'll do like, what do you think, like a sentence or two for each of us on these coaches just to go through this so we have time to get through the rest. Mike McCarthy in Dallas. I'll use one word. Safe. Retweet. Same. But I think it's smart. I'll put it that I, way. Too. Yeah, it's it's smart. I think it was a it's a good upgrade on um, on Jason Garrett, who didn't work for like ten years. But um, it'll be interesting because his offense did get worse towards his later part of the career with um, with Green Bay. So there's that. Yeah, no, I mean for for Dallas, you know, you get a guy. He's won a Super Bowl playoff mm-hmm. experience, and you know, there's a lot of reports out there that you know him and. Rodgers just didn't gel, and you got to pick one or the other, right? So, you know, you, you got to wait and see, but I like what you said. I think it, I think it is a safe bet. I don't think it's, you know, going to be the sexy pick, but I think it's kind of what they needed moving on from Garrett and a team of their caliber. Yeah, and I believe he had nine playoff appearances in 12 years as well in Green Bay. So, it, listen, this is not a, like, by me saying safe, it does not mean it's the wrong hire. I would have gone with him if I'm Dallas, too, because they're looking for someone that's proven and done it before. Because they have a team ready to win. Exactly. So, I think it makes a lot of sense. Ron Rivera in Washington. Amazing. Smartest thing they've done in God knows how many years. Rivera, just, his players love him in Carolina and look how they did after they fired him it was disaster in Carolina once they fired him being bringing in a true adult in the room and moving on from Bruce Allen for a franchise is looking to turn around that thinks they might have their quarterback that's trying to build this was the perfect move for them yeah yeah took away the ping pong tables just want to put mm, that out that's there. true but I think it is a great Pat hire. Shermer did that too though with the Giants that didn't yeah, work out too well but he, he is a great hire great coach Riverboat Ron he's not afraid to go for it players coach that's some credibility to the franchise well. yeah 100% yeah All right, Matt Rule who I will say was the coach that I initially wanted for the Giants going into everything went to Carolina was planning on going to New York the next day but was made the godfather offer there from David Tepper the offer he couldn't review could not refuse seven years over 60 million dollars for Carolina, it's exciting. It's new. It's fresh blood. It's highly regarded. And the biggest thing that he's done so far is his offensive coordinator is Joe Brady, mm-hmm. the man that revolutionized mm-hmm. Louisiana State, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, I think the Joe Brady hire was incredible. I think it was. I feel like it was a little bit under the um, radar. It too. was. It didn't get as much press well, as I thought was, it should have. It came out yesterday or Saturday, and it was one of those like Saturday Sunday night dumps. But it's incredible money. Is what I look at Matt Rule. Seven years, seventy million, all the way go up to incentives up to eighty one, eighty two mm-hmm. million. 
that's what happens when you're the richest owner in NFL. Exactly. That's so when you're a multi-billionaire. Um, I watched a lot of news because this was last Monday, so I was able to watch some of the local news or just you know before Jeopardy, after Jeopardy. A lot of people like him. He's a good coach. Just track record. That's one thing I look at. Is he turned around Temple, turned around Baylor? Is he gonna turn around? You know, the Panthers and will he have that longevity? But I wish him the best of luck. I think interesting. I always think it's interesting going from a college coach to a NFL coach. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very different thing. Like you're kind of like not a dict- You're a dictator when you're a college coach. You mm-hmm. get to control mm-hmm. everything about these kids' lives. In the NFL, you don't have as much power, and that's what has kind of made a lot of good college coaches fail in the NFL. So it'll be just interesting to see what he what he can do um, in the NFL now. And I'm just I'm playing the wait and see game, you know, because sure. like you said, even as the as a Giants fan, the Matt Rule name was floating around there, and I'll be honest, I've never heard of the guy. I had to look up who he was. I had to look, but he he does have a, a track record, mm-hmm. like Jack said, of turnaround teams. So I think you got to give give the guy the benefit of the doubt. He's got Christian McCaffrey. He's got some pieces there. I'm curious to see what they do with Cam Newton. So. Uh, you know, wish him the best and see what happens. Just jumping off that Keekly retiring, I know we can yeah. get into that obviously later, but that takes a huge hit for, especially yeah. when you're rebuilding yeah. everything. Based it does. What you said, you've got CMC on the offense, you had Keekly on the defense, but it kind of is a little tough to lose that anchor, obviously regardless. Yeah, absolutely. But as we said, rebuilt Temple, rebuilt Baylor, exciting coach. Um, very interesting now with the seventh pick in the draft, yeah. what they do at quarterback. That could be fun. Um, but... Again, a crazy amount of money to give someone that's never coached in the NFL before. So it will be very interesting to watch. And then just quickly on Kevin Stefanski, he was highly regarded. He finished second in uh, the Browns coaching kind of interviews last year when they went with Freddie Kitchens. I just think they should have gone more the Dallas-Washington route of bringing in that established guy that's done it before. Because with all those personalities in there, as we said, Ron Rivera as an adult, they didn't have one last year. And I think that's why chaos started to really set in in Cleveland, as it does in Cleveland. And while Stefanski's young, offensive-minded, hopefully will gel with Baker Mayfield and be able to get more out of that offense, I still don't know if it's the hire I would have gone with. Especially if you look at the young coaches that are doing well, is it uh, LaFleur? Mm. And it's like, well, he's got the quarterback. It's like he's not. <laughs> it's like he's he did well because he had the quarterback, especially to like I think that we looked at Josh McDaniels. Obviously, you go on and on about that. He had the chance in Denver when what was that ten four? That was fourteen years. I think that was when we were in sixth grade. Um, so he's got that. He had that chance. You know, and he he he's ready to go and do it again. I probably would have gone with him. We said established, offensive minded, gone out there, helped Baker. I just I feel like it might be. Like kind of like the similar thing this this coming year again for the Browns. Yeah, anything you guys want to hit on Stefanski or such a Browns hire? <laughs> yeah, such a I think hire. it's such a bad hire. Mm-hmm. Just especially coming right off of because he was the Vikings OC and how they just got embarrassed in San Francisco literally the day before he was hired. And it was between him. He didn't show a lot of creativity and, in and, that game. I the, will say that. And the defensive coordinator, I forget his name, of San Francisco. Robert, between Robert them. Oh, Salah, yes. And he just embarrassed him. Mm-hmm. So, first off, why do you pick the guy that just lost? <laughs> Two, why do you trust the evaluation that led you to Freddie Kitchens last year? You need to completely restart. You don't just take the number two guy on that list. Um, and like you were saying, he's just he's not going to be able to control the, the personalities in that locker room because... Let's be honest, the Vikings had a little bit of problem with that this year. They had Kirk Cousin having to go on his radio show to apologize to everybody to get yeah, anything to work. That's very fair. Um, 
And that's with Kirk Cousins as your starting quarterback, not Baker Mayfield, who's going to do even more media. Like, and he's, he's still doing media, which is ridiculous. <laughs> you don't love the progressive commercials? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's such a Browns hire, it's not going to work. There's no chance this works out. And I'm I'm so with I'm so with Conrad. I think it was a horrible hire, especially since there were reports coming out that it was between Stefanski and and Sala, the defensive mm-hmm. coordinator. I think how do you not hire the guy who took a defense that was part of a three and thirteen team, makes them one of the, you know, watching them one of the best defenses we've seen in recent years over at least the last five years. I I would have went there. I think Sala is a, a little more of a. You know, kind of like we touched on, like a dictator. He, he's kind of got that grit about him. But, yeah, no, I mean, Stefan Diggs was crazy. He, yeah. he, you couldn't can't control Stefan Diggs. You're not going to be able to control Dell. And we got to see what happens with him in the law. Oh, yeah, he's had a fun week. They did, they did. Okay, so, you know. But, but LSU's still under investigation for his little <laughs> yeah. uh, his little stun he pulled on the field as well. So, so let's let's hope he could keep Odell from, you know, spanking any more police officers, uh, you know. Or giving money to college athletes on national <laughs> television. That would, yes. that would be ideal. Well, also, too, as my dad said, what the hire was last week, he said, well, if your offensive coordinator and offense is supposed to be your thing, the day before you put up 84 yards yeah. against, you know, granted, the very good, like, defense, but it still, like, that's, you know, no, that's that, happen. that's fair, and it really does shock me that either Robert Sala or, and Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs, did not get one of these jobs um, coming out of and it. And Urban. Urban's still holding off for another name job. I was waiting until the end of the Urban's, <laughs> Urban's waiting for the USC job, which they're bringing back Clay Helton this year. They'll fire him midseason. They'll have an interim coach. Urban Meyer will be the coach in 2021. But all right, that'll wrap up. Coach O is interim again. Yeah, exactly. That'll wrap up our NFL segment. Thank you so much to Anthony Critelli for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. Oh, no, thrilled any, we finally made this happen. Make a stop over. Oh, no. We'll <laughs> definitely have you on again before the end of the semester. Um, but thank you so much for that. We are going to head into break and then go with some college football as well as some MLB. This is Round Tripper on Eve Night one and we'll be right back back here and ready to get back into it so again a thank you to our special guest anthony Cortelli, for coming on for some football but we are going to move into some college football now and combine it with uh with major league baseball here is that football segment went very long but you know what it was pretty good or i thought so yeah it was a lot of fun i'm like a couple times i want to say something about uh super bowl preview but i had to yep got it hold, hold it back That'll be next week. I Very exciting. My mom, I always text Pat notes of like remind me. It's true. Little evergreen like please remind me to say this and I don't think he wrote any of them down. No. So I started to write it in my notes. That's that's probably good. But Smart. yeah, it's always nice to see things pop up throughout the week and just keep it in mind to make sure we talk since we do go seven days in between. Though with that microphone over there, even though it gave us some trouble Can't today. Wait. Can't wait. Some emergency shows maybe uh maybe coming your way this semester. So exciting there. But all right. Man. Yes. We need one halftime NFL. Or Super Bowl, we need a whack man. We need it's a live possible. stream whack man. It's 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 possible. We'll put it that way. Especially come NFL draft time, we've got some things in the works there that, that should be it should be a lot of fun. Um, so we're gonna start LSU downs Clemson 42-25 to complete the perfect season and win the national championship. How was LSU able to take down the perfect Clemson Tigers? I think they just woke up. I think as much as it was basically uh, Joe Burrow just kind of. Figure it, not figure out how to play football in the set in the second going from the second quarter on, but I think they calmed down. I think as soon as they got as soon as they were down 17-7 after that T Higgins jet sweep, mm. the defense stepped up. Realized, and I thought it would if in a flight or flight moment like that, especially for a kind of inexperienced team. Exactly. 
it was the complete opposite. It shows you, you know, how dominant that team was, which I want to toss out there. Hot take. Is this the best team ever mm. in college football? Let's going to talk about that a little bit. It's like they literally beat seven ranked teams. They went on the road, beat a lot of teams. And there was, I have a tweet that if we get into it later, it was like they beat all like so many different conference champions and they showed it what, and the winners of each bowls that they beat. It was incredible. And that's why I think Joe Burrow, I think the, I think that team lives and dies by Joe Burrow. And once he kind of figured it out in the second, midway through the second quarter, they were kind of like, okay, you know, watch out. Yeah. I'd have to agree that once Joe Burrow kind of figured that out, um, after being, they also had the first, I believe it was first two possessions. They started within their own five. So it's kind of, Hard to get anything going, especially having the break that they have between these the semifinals and the championship game. It's hard to get things going again sometimes, especially with um, this LSU offense and how much they rely on the pass, even though they have Edwards Elaire, who had 110 yards. They still really do rely on Joe Burrow, who had a, um, as everybody kind of was saying, a like a quiet 463 and five touchdowns, if one can Plus say that. Plus a rushing touchdown. Plus a rushing touchdown, like... Yeah, they, they were just, I think they just were the better team, and they 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 had, they just all around the better team, had the better athletes, and it shows that um, LSU kind of was sharpened by playing in that SEC where they're playing against, Clemson's defense is very good, but some, most defense in the SEC are faster, a little better at certain things, and just by playing against that competition instead of the Clemson playing the ACC, I think that's really what came in because they were so they were so confident because they were like we we they went toe-to-toe with Alabama we went toe-to-toe with everybody in the SEC and with that confidence they never really got worried and were able to um, show that even after a poor start they could still get things going yeah sure and before I get into it um, if you're listening thank you Mr. Bradley very much for the retweet about the show being live very much appreciate all of your support Mr. Bradley no, retweeted Mr. Bradley, the link. Yeah, so hopefully listening? I don't know if he's listening, Mr. but he Bradley, retweeted the link. Yes, we I did the homework too, so we'll see you. I did. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, our engineer over there. We'll see you tomorrow morning. But um, thank you for that. <laughs> hopefully you hear this, but thank you for your support. Um, how LSU was able to to beat Clemson? I mean, think about it. Trevor Lawrence, the guy had never lost a game in his career. He didn't throw a touchdown pass in this game. Yeah, it was zero and yeah. zero with it. He did fumble late on. He did have a rushing touchdown, but. Clemson's damage was really done on the ground, and yes, they jumped out to that 17-7 lead, and as Sherwood kind of alluded to, my money on that point would probably be on the team that had won 29 games in a row at that point. But that's how good this LSU team was, that Burrow was just able to lead them back on his way to a six-touchdown performance. Some stats that Sherwood was kind of alluding to before I actually have in front of me. So, yeah, no, don't worry. LSU finishers wins against seven teams that were ranked in the final AP Top 25 poll, including each of the top four teams in the preseason poll, which were Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, and Oklahoma. They, they are the only team to ever do that. And so now, to go with their margin of victory from the final um, AP poll, Number two, Clemson by 17. Number four, Georgia by 27. Number six, Florida by 14. Number seven, Oklahoma by 35. Number eight, Alabama by five. Number 14, Auburn by three. Number 25, Texas by seven. That is remarkable. 
And there's just no team, at least in our lifetime, that's been able to stack up against that. Now, the only team that I was able to find that did something similar to that with doing some research was the 1995 Nebraska team. Oh, that was good with Scott Frost. Yes, which averaged 53, over 53 points per game, beat four of the final top nine teams by an average of 31 points, and a 62-24 win over number two Florida to win the national title. That's the only team that compares to this. That is how good this LSU team was. I found the tweet. So LSU opponents won the ACC Big 12, SEC East. So, you know, because they play the mm-hmm. international ch- or SEC final. Um, Orange Bowl, Fiesta Bowl, Sugar Bowl, Citrus Bowl, Alamo Bowl, and Texas Bowl. So, like, obviously those last couple aren't that great. But, like, if you beat beating basically two out of the top, what or beating basically three on the top tier Power 5 conference is incredible, then you're basically beating two teams in, like, the BCS Bowl, um, New Year's Day 6 bowl games as well. That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So that's on LSU. Then moving into Burrow. We'll stick with kind of along the same line. Did Joe Burrow just have the greatest season ever by a college quarterback? He might have. He might yeah. have. How many interceptions did he throw? Like, I feel like... I feel like How many interceptions? Interceptions. Six. Like six? Oh, yeah, no. It was, I think, the most dominant second half of the game. Second half of the season. Obviously, the most dominant in big-time games. So, like, putting up what you said. It was a quiet 463 yeah. yards, if that's possible. He broke literally every single college football playoff passing record per game in the first half against Oklahoma. Granted, take that as you will with that defense. But yeah, it was incredible. He scored the rushing touchdown. He took took a couple of big pops too. There was times against Bama where he would, or it was Auburn on the left sideline. I remember vividly just took a right underneath the chin, went straight in the benches, got right back up, was like, okay, boys, you know, let's go. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And the other thing that LSU did really good, well in this game was they stretched the field on Clemson. They threw deep a lot, and they were able to get a lot of big plays out of it. When Clemson Moore was kind of a kill you by a thousand paper cuts, LSU just went at them and was able to take advantage of that. Conrad, Joe Burrow. He's just, yeah, one of, one of the best best seasons he had was at 65, 66 total 65 touchdowns. total touchdowns, 60 total. passing, 5 rushing. And the six interceptions, like, that's just um, amazing. A 76% completion percentage, 5,671 yards. Like, that's just remarkable, especially, again, like, to say in that conference, too, with playing mm-hmm. Auburn, Alabama, Georgia, all those guys. Um, it's just absurd to think about. No, it, it really is. So, more on Burrow. It, he has to be in the argument for greatest college season ever by a college quarterback if you're not putting him at number one which he very well may be um, going back to that notion that they beat four of the top five these are the stats he had against the four out of the top five teams in the country four no 424 yards passing per game on average 19 touchdowns zero interceptions 72 percent completion percentage 10.3 yards per attempt qbrs out of 100 he had a 97.6 he didn't pile on against Little Sisters of the Poor. He played the toughest schedule in the country, and he dominated them. He won a national championship. He won the Heisman Trophy. He set the, the record for most passing touchdowns in a season, number two all-time in completion percentage, number three all-time in passing yards. It's the greatest season ever by a college quarterback. I think, too, some of those games that we talked about were on the road, and we talked about it week two um, when he looked – Matthew McConaughey square in the eyes and said, "Watch me!" and threw for over 400 yards. They were down, or they were up by three. Ten, like tide was completely turning. 
toward Texas, third down. Party, sorry. Okay. Um, and hit the guy in the drag route for the touchdown. Grant, some of that was catch and run, but like, yeah, he did. It was incredible. It's like the places he won in, you'd be lucky. The, the games that the big games that he won, as a college football fan, you would hope to win one of those games, mm-hmm. not six or seven of them. Not every single time. Yeah, you literally, after. it's kind of like okay, when is this gonna run out? When is this? Do you want to switch spots or closer? Yes. All right. All yeah, right. but it was it was incredible. Yeah, so we've got a little bit of shuffling going on in the studio, which is absolutely fine. Technical problems, my computer's gonna die. Yeah, no, you're you're totally. <laughs> I was fine. doing homework at some point today. Whoa, <laughs> good no. student, good student, proud of you. Stupid class. <laughs> so we'll skip that other one and sure. Do you have some breaking news? Uh, breaking news: Felipe Franks. I saw that. Is okay. Is going to Arkansas. Staying in the ACC or SEC. Also, breaking news: as of ten days ago. My main man, Jamie Newman from Wake Forest, going to Georgia. I wish you the best of luck, Jamie. Yes, uh, there people said that, or people are saying that Jack Sherwood is the reason he had to leave Wake Forest. I wish him. I loved him. It was incredible. He had some great comebacks. Um, Just had some things to say about him in the in the stands <laughs> of the to, game of the century. He, correct? He had to. He had to. Uh, I'm not gonna. Get, he had. He had to step up at UN at NC State. He had to beat Duke. Had a great comeback against Memphis couple great comebacks this year. I wish him the best of luck. Should have been a Heisman contention. Not going to work now. But, it's, <laughs> but, it, but it will be interesting. I hope. I wish him the best of luck. I think that he will get a lot of um, national media, which he kind of is that dual threat quarterback. He's 6'4". He's thick. He can throw it. He can also run. Tough to take down. I wish you the best of luck, Jamie. It's tough to see your ex go to like your other like to your other team to go to Georgia. So um, I'll keep close tabs on him. Yes, and another big transfer as well, Derek King going to Miami. Yeah, I just saw that, and he's eligible immediately. Immediately. Which I don't like that. So my, I, it's we can, <laughs> it's, yeah, we we can, can get into the NCAA up, another football, time. basketball, anything. But what do people always say? Miami just doesn't have a quarterback. They've got talent around it. They don't have a quarterback. They have a quarterback now. So, uh, so things are going to be interesting. Tathan Martell. Oh, God, Tate Martell. Yeah, that, that transfer worked out real well for him from Ohio State. All right, we'll move into MLB um, and that, so we can get through that a little bit, take a break, and then move into Nova basketball. My XFL tryout. Would you like to speak about that? No, XFL just the XFL tryout. I'm looking forward to it. I wish you the best of luck. PFT. Thank you. There, there you go. All right, so we're going to MLB. More fallout from the Astros cheating scandal has continued. The Red Sox moved on from Alex Cora, firing him last Tuesday night. They are still under investigation. The Mets and Carlos Beltran decided to mutually part ways. Are these the right calls for these organizations? <laughs> you can go. You can go. Uh, I think the Alex Cora one is definitely the right move because everything that it sounded like coming out of what's released from the Houston investigation, since he was a coach there, was that he was kind of like the head guy in that. And especially with things coming that the Red Sox were doing it when they won the World Series in 18. Um, I think it's, I, I like that they got ahead of it and didn't wait to be like, oh, it's a year-long suspension. All right, we'll use that as the cover to fire him, not instead of being like, he did something wrong. We know it's wrong. We let it happen, but now we're going to fix it before the MLB like makes them fix it, even though they kind of still are. But um, I like that a little better. The... Mets and Beltron, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not fully in on what exactly is going on there, but Beltron was a player during the time, right? He was. So I, I think the players get off a little more because I don't know how much say they have. Like, if your coach is like, all right, this is what you do, like, it's hard to get kind of out of it. But it's, yeah, that one I'm not sure, but I think 
they made the safe call by firing him so that they won't get anything in the future. It is. Yeah, I think that I think it's smart because they kind of do it to show, hey, instead of you giving us a punishment, we're going to slap our own selves on the wrist and hope, you know, the MLB goes quietly, which I don't think it will, as we've talked about, is because Cora was the main guy in what was going on with Strohs and with the Red Sox, so it will be interesting to see what happens. Beltran just got thrown on the bus, plain and simple. Everyone that went in there named two people into the investigation, it was Cora and Beltran. Um... I was excited to watch him, you know, be a manager because it is fun to watch players that in NFL, MLB, whatnot, um, NBA, you know, take that next step and now become the manager. So it would, it was going to be exciting. Also, too, I don't know if you guys saw the tweet today. Marcus Stroman came out and they were saying, "Hey, here's them taping pitches in 2000. Oh yeah, it was like 2017, 2018." And Stroman goes, "I don't know why." He said, "Now it finally makes sense why they." like, knew what was coming and why they mm-hmm. kept fighting on my nastiest stuff. And he, it was a, it was a very interesting tweet that it's kind of like, you know, can we connect those dots? Yes. Are they completely connected? It's a little bit of a stretch, but it is kind of fun to be like, hey, you know, this is why, you know, this is why we lost. This is why, you know, they shelled me for 11 runs and three innings and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. On the Red Sox with Cora, I do think it's something that they had to do because reports were coming out, especially from Heyman, that Cora was going to get a suspension like A.J. Hinch, if not more, and it was probably going to be worse because Cora was implicated as the main man, as the bench coach of the Astros when this was going on, and has brought some sort of system over to Boston Red Sox, who are currently under investigation for it right now. So something was going to hit him. So I totally understand the Red Sox moving on. They were going to lose their manager for at least a year, if not more. It's kind of tough to just wait on a manager to come back. You'd rather just move in a different direction there. With the Mets and Beltron. It was what it is, is it plays up to the media and to pressure that people are going to give on them. It's a weak move because Carlos Beltran, as we said, was a player at the time. Also from MLB, shocking is that they named Beltran is the only player named in the report. They name all the coaches, all the executives. Carlos Beltran is the only player they named in the report. You name one player or you i mean you mean you name no players or you name all of them you do not do this this was a calculated attempt by major league baseball to get the mets to do this that's what that was you do not just name one player for no reason so they wanted them to do this for the mets they could have gotten through this they absolutely could have gotten through this with beltron he was not suspended by major league baseball so you have your out there he was a player when it happened it's a it's so simple to just put him up there for that press for one press conference Take responsibility, say, yep, I was a part of it, I apologize, we're moving forward, you're done. It's that simple. This is not like some crazy PR storm for the Mets. The Mets weren't the cheaters in this, it was the Houston Astros. The Mets didn't win the World Series, it was the Houston Astros. This was a Houston Astros problem that the Mets allowed themselves to affect them. Now, if Beltron lied to the organization and said, I had no part in this, I know nothing about it during the interview process, that's different. But they didn't go out and say that he did it when they had the press conference announcing that they mutually parted ways. So because of that, I don't understand why they would do it other than trying to save face in public perception, which we know this franchise is so concerned about doing. So that doesn't surprise me at all. The other thing here that's so interesting is that this is completely unprecedented, that you have two of the best teams in Major League Baseball is looking for a manager less than three weeks from spring training, and the New York Mets, who are a team on the up and up, are looking for a manager through less than three weeks from spring training. That doesn't happen ever. This is such a strange situation that now all of them are put in. Now, yes, Houston and Boston, definitely much more self-inflicted. Um, the Mets have to deal with it as well. But 
where do you go from here? If you're any of these teams, do you hire from outside the organization and bring a guy in that hasn't been around them all off season? Because remember, we're three weeks from spring training. They've been building towards this season since November, and you lose all of that? Do you rearrange your coaching staff now? Because you have guys brought in to work specifically with the manager. The Mets have already said they will not be rearranging their coaching staff. They made their hires for Beltron, but they're going to stick it that way. Or do you stay internally and you go with a guy that's familiar with the farm system, with how the organization works, with the guys on it? It opens up so many questions. It's so interesting what happens from here. Yeah, I think just what you said is you, I think you have to stay internally just because it's you can't throw everything out for scratch. Grand baseball isn't that huge where it's we're running plays or whatnot, but knowing players, off-season training and whatnot, I think you have to stay in-house with someone that was on that coaching staff. See, I'm going the other way. I think I think that's right for the Mets because the Mets did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, they just got, like you said, pressured into this situation basically. But I think if you're Houston or the Red Sox, you have to go out of house. Yeah, mm-hmm. for the Red Sox, yes. Bring in that clean face. I think you have to bring in the clean face or else you're never going to get over this. Um, I think it'd be much better to kind of start over, maybe have a down season this year, than if you bring somebody in-house, I don't, whatever success happens this year, next year, until that guy's gone, it's all going to be, was he still cheating? They just found a way to hide it again. Yeah, and remember for Boston, they're still going to get hit with something. Yes. Because the investigation is still going on. MLB is going to come out with some sort of punishment for them. When I was talking with Dan, it was interesting because he said what they – what they were like, obviously they were looking at further in depth, but they were looking at like the pitches and whatnot. So it is interesting of like what you know what both teams were looking at, but they definitely took it to the further stance of that the players were going back there to the clubhouse to watch their all that bats to see if it was a strike. You know, this is I got to look for this, which is what it's supposed to be, which is supposed for. to be. But it's like definitely like that's smart. You can go back, you can take a look. Hey, this guy's change up is doing really well, or you know, I, was, I had trouble coming out reading that out of the hand. But it was taken to the next level, and I'm interested to ask both you guys, should Astros players and Sox players be suspended? I say no as of right now. I think MLB wanted to have it on the executives and on the coaches in place, which is why they put out what they did, which is also why I think it's so weak what the Mets did with Beltron. If this investigation goes further... And we find things out about the rumored buzzers mm-hmm. that are yeah, part that's of players. Buzzers if the buzzers are real, you suspend players. So for yeah. what for people that don't know what that is, it has been rumored even when this stuff initially came out that the sign stealing goes deeper than just a radio camera or excuse me, just a TV camera to go along with garbage cans. The players on the Astros, which has been reported from multiple sources, is not just one guy just coming out with it, had some sort of electronic buzzer that was attached to them that would that players would be able to signal it to them while they're at bat to let them know what's coming. Now, again, rumors. We don't know. But it's been reported from a lot of people. And there are a lot of players that are definite, as we've started to see them voice on Twitter. Um, I know Alex Wood was one. There have been a couple others that are furious Mm -hmm. about this. There's a chance that more of this comes out. And if that is something that happened, wow, where does baseball go? Uh, you got to kick him out. Like, especially, like, I look at the Altuve, obviously being... That's the thing. You're talking about superstars yeah. of the game. George Bregman. Springer, Jose Altuve, yeah. Alex Bregman, Carlos Correa. These are not nobodies. Well, These aren't the biggest names in the sport. Well, it's like, what, it's like what my mom always tells me. Is she always says, you know, is you can get away with something, but sooner or later the past will catch up with you. And mm-hmm. It's kind of like you can hide something. And 
like the truth will come out and people will know. So obviously the whole World Series I think will be discredited and quotation marks like all of all of us we're gonna look at it. Yeah, it's gotten asterisk forever. Yeah. But you it's, can't take it away, but it'll, it'll be tainted, tainted for well, yes. It's the same thing with the twenty thirteen LSU national championship in basketball or uh, Louisiana bas or pardon me, Louisville basketball. Is it taken away? Yes. But they still won that. You don't mm-hmm. give it to Michigan. No. But it's kind of like the integrity. I think if you come out and obviously being a Yankee fan is like a two things was when he hit that walk off home run Altuve, no emotion. Like it was as if he hit a pop up. Are you are about to say it was as if he knew it was coming? Yeah, as if it was, <laughs> there it is. Yeah, obviously I'm not, I'm not going to go into no, like that deep, but like uh, no emotion, which is very odd, especially taking a team in the World Series. Granted, they have you know they were there two years ago, they've been there before. I feel like you've been there. Second thing is not ripping off the jersey and saying no, don't rip it off. That's the comment. That's, that's very, very intriguing when you go with these yeah. buzzers that Altuve could was visibly saying, "Do not take my jersey." Yeah, off. that's the big thing where it's kind of like that's like that's that that's a head scratcher one. Mm-hmm. I, obviously, there's a video of in the Nationals when the thing falls off the finger. It looks like a piece of tape. Like I'm gonna give that. I remember when it out. happened. It was like that's interesting, Possibly, but yeah. it's a little bit of a stretch. I think it's still a stretch now. But the no, don't pull off my jersey. Like you literally, as I said, you just took your team to the pinnacle series. Growing up as a baseball player, you're not looking to win a World Baseball Classic. You're not hmm. looking to win Olympic gold. You want to win the World Series. You want what do kids do in their backyard? Is a walk off home run to win the World Series. But this is second best to send your team to the World Series at home, Game Six against you know arguably one of the three, four biggest teams in baseball and all of sports. In all sports, definitely in just, baseball. And he just doesn't show much reaction as if what I said, as if it was a batting practice home run. Yeah. And so as we said, these are rumors, like we're just recycling what we heard, but it's starting to come up more and more. So something I would like to touch on, usually don't like to touch on rumors on here. Cause I like to see concrete stuff, but it's just really starting to pop up. And it's such an interesting added element. If this does come to light. And it is interesting. Because I was talking to my roommates about it and they said, you can even just put this on pause for a week because things keep swirling every single day. Like mm-hmm. we could have put this on, the back burner for this week and we and obviously i think that we probably will next week we'll talk about the super bowl but there will be more stuff that comes this out is not the end. Yeah, yeah so we'll be back talking about this which is for us it's fun to talk about yeah. but it's and it's obviously huge sports news but it's kind of like it's incredible it's crazy it's yeah, craziness it, it really is all right we're gonna send it to a quick break not even gonna finish the song and then get back so we can get into some villanova basketball as well as well as around the nova nation this is round trip around 89.1 and we'll be right back Back here to finish up on Round Tripper. Really, really solid discussion there on, on some college football and some MLB. We are going to get into some Villanova basketball here. Nova basketball coming off a 2-0 and week through survival. I'll put it that way uh, yep. with wins over UConn and DePaul. Yeah, 79-75 overtime win against DePaul. 61-55 win against UConn. I called both of them on play-by-play, which was obviously a great time. Um, thank you to, uh, to Sean Mulady, Pat Kapoor, and Luke Lynch for doing it along with me. Jack Sherwood will be joining that list in a couple weeks. February 1st, noon. Wells Fargo Center, Creighton. Oh. Battle of the OMG. He's going to do color with me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm going to talk. No, I thought I was doing. (laughs) Pretty important. Wait, wait, wait. Pat and I agreed on. I was doing play by play. He was doing color. He was actually my stats guy. Yeah, (laughs) I'm actually not even going to (laughs) talk. It's just going to be just me. Oh, so it's like I'm on the list. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But no, you like the experience, right? Yeah, I know it moves cool. quickly, I mean, but I don't. Yeah, I. It's I, not for everybody. If anybody was thinking, it's very hard. I listened to Pat's tape and I was like, "Wow." Thank he, you. He was literally painting. He's Picasso on the radio, just painting a picture. One day. One day. One day. Hopefully. 
But all right, so we'll get into it. Villanova up to number nine in the AP poll. Jeremiah Robinson Earl was named Big East Freshman of the Week. There have been 10 Big East <laughs> Freshmen of the Week. Villanova has seven of them. Justin Moore with four. Robinson Earl adding three. Kind of with the being two games, it's kind of tough to break down one of them. So what I'll go into first is Colin Gillespie. Gillespie has taken his fair share of criticism from everywhere. I've done it as well. This season, he has been on another world. Gillespie has been every bit of a leader that this team needed, but not only you know with what off the court, on the court as well. Especially against DePaul, he willed them to that win against DePaul when they blew a ten-point lead with about three and a half minutes left. Gillespie finished with twenty-one points, four assists. Which you might say, okay, that that's a good game. It's not a great game. He went nine of ten from the foul line yeah. when DePaul just kept on hacking Villanova and sending them to the foul line and try to get into this game. That's a big-time performance from a big-time player that this program really relies on. You remind me a little bit of Phil Booth last year, where he's, where obviously, obviously there was the VU Hoops article that was, uh, is it in yet? Is with, uh, yes, with the inbounding. With the inbounding. And it's kind of that's just a hilarious article, but um, shout out to the VU Hoops guys who are yeah, fantastic. But we don't. It, it feels like we don't have that many inbounds plays. It just seems like it's a lot of ISO, and I felt like last year it was kind of like Phil Booth, you know, posting someone up, and now Gillespie's kind of taking that role where he is taking the chart, taking charge of the team when it gets to crunch time, and it's incredible what you said. Going back to the Baylor game was if you could say this coming out party, even though he had a national championship to his name, he had a lot, you know, he played incredible, not incredible, played very well over two years, and this year he's 100% taking the huge step that we needed him to, um, definitely. Uh, you know, if he wants to make it to the NBA, to make it to the show, there is a, you know, obviously another substantial leap he has to take, but he still has another year and a half. But he has been someone when we've talked about it as friends in the dorms and, you know, on this radio show and at games is we need, like, who, where was that experience going to come from? Samuels, Cosby, Roundtree, Gillespie. It's been Gillespie, and it, it's been awesome. It's been very fun to watch. Yeah, no, he's, he's had a fantastic year, and I know – I usually get on him a lot, but he's especially, like you said, in that DePaul game, he kind of really took over in that second half, um, really was able to not only knock down the free throws, but going four of eight from three um, was really big because we needed all of those, especially those last those last three minutes where they really tried to give it away. <laughs> um, and he did his best, like even without the inbounds play, it's always kind of for him and everybody knows it's going to him. He is able to find every once in a while to find it, even though it seems like the play calling is making it as hard as you can to inbound the ball. Um, he's able to figure that out, and really with kind of with Crosby Roundtree not really getting a lot of playing time because he's kind of taking a step back, and Samuel's kind of he's doing his role, but it's really nothing more than that. You can see he he leads the team with like emotion and stuff, but Collins really able to take charge um, with handling the ball, getting everybody else involved. With, with the four assists, that he's actually done a fantastic job and has done so much better than I thought he would be able to do. Yeah, I agree. And Samuel's actually another player that I want to look at. Kind of went back between if I'm going to go Samuels or Robinson Earl here. But Samuels, over the last two games, has just, it's really exemplar or personified what makes him so important to Villanova because, no, he's not a great player. But what he does, he does very well and that he seems to continue to pop up in clutch spots. I mean, think of that Kansas game. He beat UConn here with his, he drove to the lane, finger roll, drew the foul, and went to the line for the end one, and then with the three to ice it. 
He's popping up. He's getting steals, seven steals in the last two games from him. Defensively, he has been playing out of this world for them. Six rebounds, five rebounds, 19 points, 15 points. This is the type of Jermaine Samuels that is the perfect role player to what makes this Villanova team so dangerous. Because when he's pitching in like that and then can add 15 to 19, which he's not going to do every night, especially the 19 range, he can put in that 10 to 15. But 19 was a very good scoring effort from him, especially the fact he went four of six from beyond the arc, which Danny Hurley in his press conference after said Villanova has a lot of poison. You have to pick your poison. And he decided to pick as a game plan going into it, letting Samuel shoot from three. He just knocked him down in this game. Samuels has been playing very, very well lately. Yeah, I think that's what I was going to say, is being able to stretch the floor. He obviously had a huge game last, last year against Marquette, where he just was on the He won that game by himself yeah. as yeah. well. And Yeah, it was, which was incredible. And it's um, he reminds me of kind of what you said, is to take away some of the pressure. He reminds me of Pascal, the 2018 team, where he's such a great threat. And obviously Pascal's tearing it up in the NBA, not tearing it up, but doing very well. But there's so many other threats in front of him that it's where you said, pick the poison, who's it going to go to? And when you're least expecting it, it's kind of like, well, where is this guy? You know, as a defense, where was this guy? Like, I thought he wasn't supposed to score. Like, he's kind of, he puts in, in the big-time moments, steps up when he doesn't have the ball in his hand majority of the time. Yeah, I completely agree with all that. And that he's just able, he knows his role so well, and he knows that, for the most part, if he's able to um, get some rebounds, get the steals, get a couple blocks every game, limit his turnovers, that's really all this team needs him to do on a regular basis. But the fact that he's able to step up in some of these games, especially against like UConn and that Marquette game last year, um, where he is able to add that scoring to it because they're really a lot of teams just choose to back way off him from three. Mm-hmm. And when he's able to hit the shot, um, he just has to do it with confidence, which he lacks a lot of the time. But you can start to see it's happened more and more this year where you can see him in games. Oh, I'm confident. I'm gonna I'm gonna step into this one. Let Let's see what happens. And when he does that. He's able to do it, and he does it just enough that this team is just so much better because he's on the team. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gets a lot of stuff because a lot of the time he can't hit a three, but then there's these couple of games a year where he really is able to just do it and wins you a game you didn't think you were able to pull off. I think he's also smart. He's very smart in the sense that if he doesn't have it there and he's taking the three and they give him space, he's not going to pull it. He's not going to be like, I remember, yeah. uh, Mar- they said Marcus Howard never sees a shot he doesn't like. That's a fact. And it's like the same with Jermaine Samuels is complete opposite. He's like, hey, if I'm hot, I'm going to pull the trigger. He did that a little bit in the Big East tournament and during the, re- or during the two games we had in the uh, March Madness. But this year it's kind of been like, hey, if I don't have it today, there's four other guys on this court that it's not me basketball, which huge credit to obviously the Villanova basketball system. But even more credit to, you know, for a young athlete like that to recognize and be, hey, you know, this is a team sport. Yeah, and it shows the difference of the teams as well, just comparing what Marcus Howard. Howard actually has to do that with this Marquette (laughs) team this year with the Hauser brothers leaving. And, I mean, he dropped 42 over the weekend, as Marcus Howard does. Just a special, special talent. With with Samuels, he's just a part of the cog here in Villanova and a very important cog Mm -hmm. um, to be able to make this whole machine work. We'll, st- we'll go into what we liked, what we didn't like from the week, just to finish up with some Villanova basketball before we move into Nova Nation. I'll start for what we like. Just to go with the cliche, it was the attitude this week. Villanova was in two close games, and even though it's close, they just seem to be able to pull it out. Well, these other teams panic, especially UConn down the stretch that had an opportunity to win that game, probably should have won that game. And then Altariq Gilbert threw the no-look pass into the post with under a minute left to that ended up being a turnover. 
Villanova doesn't do things like that just because they're able to pull these games out because they have the experience of guys like Samuels, like Gillespie, like Cosby Roundtree, who, yeah, he's not playing, but he's sitting there on the bench and he's been through it before. For a young guy to be able to have that is important. And then just a quick, quick note as well on just Jeremiah Robinson Earl because he did, you know, win Biggie's freshman of the week. Yeah. It wasn't a crazy week for him if you look at just the stats, but if you watch him play, 13 and 13 against DePaul, obviously beastly performance. His fifth double double of the season, 11 and 7 against UConn. Six of six from the foul line. Again, a freshman. Those were key foul shots towards the end of the game that he was able to put Villanova ahead and also had a monumental rebound down against Josh Carlton, who's one of UConn's better players, a very good forward, went up with one hand and brought it down for an offensive board and then was fouled when UConn would have had a chance to have a possession there. That can't be understated. Yeah, and that's what we talked about was we talked on the radio was big man rebounds, and that was a huge big man rebound. Also, too, I'm not going to lie, whenever I see that Nova Nation post or men's basketball post about fill-in-the-blank winning Rookie of the Year or Rookie of the Week, I'm kind of surprised because they, it's all part of one moving, like, engine one moving, well, that be, I'm trying to on the word, but just they're a part They're part of a team is everyone feeds off of each other, and that's what I like is that, and what you said, too, is when push came to shove is they stood up, and that's, I feel like in our four years so far, in once in close games like that in single-digit games, We've won probably about 95% of them, mm-hmm. and that's just – that's coaching. And I told my mom that once we beat uh, Kansas at home was if you look at any game in the big in the biggest of moments, Big East championships, final four games, games against the number one team, games against teams that, you know, you might not get up to against DePaul, against UConn. When push comes to shove, they're ready to go. And yeah, that's they really what, are. That's exactly what I love. What I don't like is turnovers. We're trying to fix that, but I think that it's um, – Hey, it's kind of like, you know, we're chugging along. We're doing very well. We're up to nine in the polls. Not many things that, you know, that you, you were, I honestly, I'm grasping at straws for things I didn't like. Yeah, I'd go with the, the thing that I guess kind of you've both said is that even with these being two, I don't want to say like lesser teams, but not as, as highly profiled as like a Marquette of Kansas. It's not Butler tomorrow. It's not Butler. Yeah. Um, that these were way closer than they should have been. And they know it should have been mm-hmm. blowouts in both mm-hmm. of these games. Um, because everybody knows what you're supposed to do going into a game. And then when it turned out that that's not what's going to happen, it didn't seem like they panicked. They maybe had a couple plays, a couple possessions here or there, where they had stupid um, turnovers. Especially against DePaul. Wait. Yeah, especially against DePaul in the last two minutes. Of regulation. Over time, they, they uh, went back to normal. It, it, was, it looked... Um, they were able to stay kind of composed and did figure out in the end, which is always a sign of a good team that they're able to do that when everything's going wrong. They figure the one thing that goes right and keep doing it. And the thing I don't like is they should have blown up both these teams. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah. should have. Yes. So a home game awaits against number 14, Butler, tomorrow night at the Fenner and Pavilion. Butler coming off two straight losses. A big, big game in their schedule, especially because Marquette coming up at the weekend for them as well. This is a crucial stretch for the Bulldogs, who have been fantastic this season. And then a trip to Providence on Saturday, which any trip to the dunk is not easy. Providence is playing much better. So, I mean, what more do you want us to say? It's the Big East this year. It's Villanova. It's going to be tough. But two, two good games. Yes, I, I completely agree. Do it's you want to do predictions quickly for, just for tomorrow's game? Because it's a top 15 matchup. Sure. Start. Just throw it out. Um, I will say Villanova wins 65-60. I don't think it's a super high scoring, and I think Butler keeps it yeah, close. Say 72-66 or right in that 5-6 margin. I was going to say Villanova. 70-68. <laughs> 
Okay. Oh, wow. All right, Plus. so we got some good games. I'm calling that game tomorrow, yeah. so hopefully it is a good one. All right, so we'll finish up with Nova Nation just very, very quickly. Conrad, there was a Villanova track oh, yeah. uh, event over the weekend. How did that go? Yeah, it actually went really well. Um, it was the second meet of the season, but most of the, at least the on-the-track guys, the runners on both sprints and distance kind of opened up this week at Navy in Annapolis. Um, there's a little bit more of a low-key meet, but a lot of the team did really well. A lot of the freshmen definitely got off good, to good starts, and it's a good place to start the season, and there's still a long way to go, but um, really happy with everything that happened. Do you know any of those runners that did very well? Would one of them happen to be in this room? No. No? Uh, Kyra tells me nothing. Brody, oh. Brody did really well. Um, Alexis did really well. Um, what freshman am I missing? Um, Faith did really well. Um, I'm definitely missing people, but all the freshmen did fantastic for their first meet. Dylan, who's a sophomore, also mm-hmm. had his first meet on the sprint team. Um, he, he he ran really well for being the first race in like two plus years. Um, but yeah, all the guys with their first meet getting out of the belt, they all did really fantastic. That's great. And Conrad's being very humble. He also finished second in his race at a PR on the 500 meter. So congratulations. Nothing, congratulations to our buddy over there who had a solid, <laughs> a solid start to the season. I, I thought I told you Saturday. Mm. Multiple things. Conrad Multiple things. Oh, oh. Is there anything you want to you want to touch on there yeah. at the end just because we're basically just out of quickly, time? Just quickly, Ken Jennings won the Jeopardy Go tournament. Also, I was telling Madeline this. Calling it the greatest of all time, I'd like they should have called it the smartest of all time. There because goes. Jeopardy is like, obviously GOAT has that great ring to it. Yes. It was a lot of fun. James Holzhauer and Ken Jennings went toe-to-toe. Brad struggled a little bit. Brad struggled a lot. But I did love his, um, at the end, final Jeopardy, he would write a lot of messages to yeah. Alex Trebek. It was a lot of fun. It, out, it was a great event. It outviewed like, a lot of things. A lot of, and my, that's why my mom said she was like, this is going to be huge viewing it. Out and it was. Game if he, one of the finals last year. Like yeah. I'm, I think it was uh, 16 out of 7, or well, be 15 out of 16 Monday night games. Um, and then just quickly, um, what I said, shouldn't be called smartest ever. Australian Open tennis started. Roger Feder cleaned up yesterday. Serena won. Everything kind of went to that. So um, stay tuned for next week when we get to the second week of a major. All right. So that'll wrap it all up for us here on Round Tripper. Good to have a full-length show this week. Uh, a lot of fun to get that. Again, thank you to Anthony Cretelli coming in for our football segment. So... For Conrad Bayer and Jack Sherwood, I'm Pat Sang. I will leave you with one quote from Dr. King here on Martin Luther King Day. The time is always right to do what is right. Thank you so much for listening. This is Round Tripper. We'll be back at it next Monday night. Apologies for the uh, um, issues there at the start, but we ironed those out. And um, go Cats.